Book Three, Chapter Eight of Amelia, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Amelia by Henry Fielding. The story of Booth continued. Mr. Booth thus went on. We now took leave of the garrison, and having landed at Marseilles, arrived at Montpellier, without anything happening to us worth remembering, except the extreme seasickness of poor Amelia. But I was afterwards well repaid for the terrors which it occasioned me by the good consequences which attended it for i believe it contributed even more than the air of montpellier to the perfect re-establishment of her health i ask your pardon for interrupting you cries miss matthews but you never satisfied me whether you took the sergeant's money you have made me half in love with that charming fellow how can you imagine madam answered booth i should have taken from a poor fellow what was of so little consequence to me, and at the same time of so much to him. Perhaps now you will derive this from the passion of pride. Indeed, says she, I neither derive it from the passion of pride nor from the passion of folly, but methinks you should have accepted the offer, and I am convinced you hurt him very much when you refused it. But pray proceed in your story. Then Booth went on as follows. As Amelia recovered her health and spirits daily, we began to pass our time very pleasantly at Montpellier. For the greatest enemy to the French will acknowledge that they are the best people in the world to live amongst for a little while. In some countries it is almost as easy to get a good estate as a good acquaintance. In England, particularly, acquaintance is of almost as slow growth as an oak, so that the age of man scarce suffices to bring it to any perfection, and families seldom contract any great intimacy till the third or at least the second generation. So shy, indeed, are we English of letting a stranger into our houses that one would imagine we regarded all such as thieves. Now the French are the very reverse. Being a stranger amongst them entitles you to the better place, and to the greater degree of civility. And if you wear but the appearance of a gentleman, they never suspect you are not one. Their friendship, indeed, seldom extends as far as their purse nor is such friendship usual in other countries. To say the truth, politeness carries friendship far enough in the ordinary occasions of life, and those who want this accomplishment rarely make amends for it by their sincerity. For bluntness, or rather rudeness, as it commonly deserves to be called, is not always so much a mark of honesty as it is taken to be. The day after our arrival we became acquainted with Monsieur Baguillard. He was a Frenchman of great wit and vivacity, 
with a greater share of learning than gentlemen are usually possessed of. As he lodged in the same house with us, we were immediately acquainted, and I liked his conversation so well that I never thought I had too much of his company. Indeed, I spent so much of my time with him that Amelia, I know not whether I ought to mention it, grew uneasy at our familiarity, and complained of my being too little with her, from my violent fondness for my new acquaintance. For our conversation, turning chiefly upon books, and principally Latin ones, for we read several of the classics together, she could have but little entertainment by being with us. When my wife had once taken it into her head that she was deprived of my company by Monsieur Baguillard, it was impossible to change her opinion, and though I now spent more of my time with her than I had ever done before, she still grew more and more dissatisfied, till at last she very earnestly desired me to quit my lodgings, and insisted upon it with more vehemence than I had ever known her express before. To say the truth, if that excellent woman could ever be thought unreasonable, I thought she was so on this occasion. But in what light soever her desires appeared to me, as they manifestly arose from an affection of which I had daily the most enduring proofs, I resolved to comply with her, and accordingly removed to a distant part of the town. For it is my opinion that we can have but little love for the person whom we will never indulge in an unreasonable demand. Indeed, I was under a difficulty with regard to Monsieur Baguillard, for as I could not possibly communicate to him the true reason for quitting my lodgings, so I found it as difficult to deceive him by a counterfeit one. Besides, I was apprehensive I should have little less of his company than before. I could indeed have avoided this dilemma by leaving Montpellier for Amelia had perfectly recovered her health. But I had faithfully promised Captain James to wait his return from Italy, whither he was gone some time before from Gibraltar. Nor was it proper for Amelia to take any long journey, she being now near six months gone with child. This difficulty, however, proved to be less than I had imagined it, for my French friend, whether he suspected anything from my wife's behavior, though she never, as I observed, showed him the least incivility, became suddenly as cold on his side. After our leaving the lodgings, he never made above two or three formal visits. Indeed, his time was soon after entirely taken up by an intrigue with a certain countess, which blazed all over Montpellier. We had not been long in our new apartments before an English officer arrived at Montpellier, and came to lodge in the same house with us. This gentleman, whose name was Bath, was of the rank of a major, and had so much singularity in his character, that perhaps you have never heard of any like him. He was far from having any of those bookish qualifications which had before caused my Amelia's disquiet. 
it is true his discourse generally turned on matters of no feminine kind war and martial exploits being the ordinary topics of his conversation however as he had a sister with whom amelia was greatly pleased an intimacy presently grew between us and we four lived in one family the major was a great dealer in the marvellous and was constantly the little hero of his own tale this made him very entertaining to amelia who of all the persons in the world hath the truest taste and enjoyment of the ridiculous for whilst no one sooner discovers it in the character of another no one so well conceals her knowledge of it from the ridiculous person i cannot help mentioning a sentiment of hers on this head as i think it doth her great honour if i had the same neglect said she for ridiculous people with the generality of the world i should rather think them the objects of tears than laughter but in reality i have known several who in some parts of their characters have been extremely ridiculous in others have been altogether as amiable for instance said she here is the major who tells us of many things which he has never seen and of others which he hath never done and both in the most extravagant excess and yet how amiable is his behaviour to his poor sister whom he hath not only brought over hither for her health at his own expense but has come to bear her company i believe madam i repeat her very words for i am very apt to remember what she says you will easily believe from a circumstance i have just mentioned in the major's favour especially when i've told you that his sister was one of the best of girls that it was entirely necessary to hide from her all kind of laughter at any part of her brother's behaviour to say the truth this was easy enough to do for the poor girl was so blinded with love and gratitude and so highly honoured and reverenced by her brother that she had not the least suspicion that there was a person in the world capable of laughing at him indeed i am certain she never made the least discovery of our ridicule for i am well convinced she would have resented it for besides the love she bore her family she had a little family pride which would sometimes appear to say the truth if she had any fault it was that of vanity but she was a very good girl upon the whole and none of us are entirely free from faults you are a good-natured fellow will answered miss matthews but vanity is a fault of the first magnitude in a woman and often the occasion of many others to this booth made no answer but continued his story in this company we passed two or three months very agreeably till the major and i both betook ourselves to our several nurseries my wife being brought to bed of a girl and miss bath confined to her chamber by a surfeit which had like to have occasioned her death here miss matthews burst into a loud laugh 
of which, when Booth asked the reason, she said she could not forbear at the thoughts of two such nurses. And did you really, says she, make your wife's caudle yourself? Indeed, madam, said he, I did. And do you think that so extraordinary? Indeed I do, answered she. I thought the best husbands had looked on their wives lying in as a time of festival and jollity. What? Did you not even get drunk in the time of your wife's delivery? Tell me honestly how you employed yourself at this time. Why then, honestly, replied he, and in defiance of your laughter, I lay behind her bolster and supported her in my arms, and upon my soul I believe I felt more pain in my mind than she underwent in her body. And now answer me as honestly. Do you really think it a proper time of mirth, when the creature one loves to distraction is undergoing the most racking torments, as well as in the most imminent danger, and, but I need not express any more tender circumstances. I am to answer honestly, cried she. Yes, and sincerely, cries Booth. Why then, honestly and sincerely, says she, may I never see heaven if I don't think you are an angel of a man. No, madam, answered Booth, but indeed you do me too much honor. There are many such husbands. Nay, have we not an example of the like tenderness in the major? Though as to him, I believe, I shall make you laugh. While my wife lay in, Miss Bath being extremely ill, I went one day to the door of her apartment to inquire after her health, as well as for the major, whom I had not seen during a whole week. I knocked softly at the door, and being bid to open it, I found the major in his sister's antechamber, warming her posset. His dress was certainly whimsical enough, having on a woman's bedgown and a very dirty flannel nightcap, which, being added to a very odd person, for he is a very awkward thin man, near seven feet high, might have formed, in the opinion of most men, a very proper object of laughter. The major started from his seat at my entering into the room, and, with much emotion and a great oath, cried out, Is it you, sir? I then inquired after his and his sister's health. He answered that his sister was better, and he was very well, though I did not expect, sir, cried he, with not a little confusion, to be seen by you in this situation. I told him I thought it impossible he could appear in a situation more becoming his character. You do not, answered he, by God. I am very much obliged to you for that opinion, but I believe, sir, however my weakness may prevail on me to descend from it, no man can be more conscious of his own dignity than myself. His sister then called to him from the inner room, upon which he rang the bell for her servant, and then, after a stride or two across the room, he said, with an elated aspect, I would not have you think, Mr. Booth, because you have caught me in this déshabille, by coming upon me a little too abruptly, 
I cannot help saying a little too abruptly, that I am my sister's nurse. I know better what is due to the dignity of a man, and I have shown it in a line of battle. I think I have made a figure there, Mr. Booth, and, becoming my character by God, I ought not to be despised too much if my nature is not totally without its weaknesses. He uttered this, and some more of the same kind, with great majesty, or, as he called it, dignity. Indeed, he used some hard words that I did not understand, for all his words are not to be found in a dictionary. Upon the whole, I could not easily refrain from laughter. However, I conquered myself, and soon after retired from him, astonished that it was possible for a man to possess true goodness, and be at the same time ashamed of it. But if I was surprised at what had passed at this visit, how much more was I surprised the next morning, when he came very early to my chamber, and told me he had not been able to sleep one wink at what had passed between us. There were some words of yours, says he, which must be further explained before we part. You told me, sir, when you found me in that situation, which I cannot bear to recollect, that you thought I could not appear at one more becoming my character. These were the words. I shall never forget them. Do you imagine that there is any one of the dignity of a man wanting in my character? Do you think that I have, during my sister's illness, behaved with a weakness that savors too much of effeminacy? I know how much it is beneath a man to whine and whimper about a trifling girl as well as you or any man. And, if my sister had died, I should have behaved like a man on the occasion. I would not have you think I confine myself from company merely upon her account. I was very much disordered myself, and when you surprised me in that situation, I repeat again in that situation, her nurse had not left the room three minutes, and I was blowing the fire for fear it should have gone out. In this manner he ran on almost a quarter of an hour before he would suffer me to speak. At last, looking steadfastly in his face, I asked him if I must conclude that he was in earnest. In earnest, says he, repeating my words, do you then take my character for a jest? Looky, sir, said I very gravely, I think we know one another very well, and I have no reason to suspect you should impute it to fear when I tell you I was so far from intending to affront you that I meant you one of the highest compliments. Tenderness for women is so far from lessening that it proves a true manly character. The manly Brutus showed the utmost tenderness in his Portia, and the great king of Sweden, the bravest and even fiercest of men, shut himself up three whole days in the midst of a campaign and would see no one on the death of a favorite sister. At these words I saw his features soften, and he cried out, Damn me, I admire the King of Sweden of all the men in the world, and he is a rascal that is ashamed of doing anything 
which the king of Sweden did. And yet, if any king of Sweden in France was to tell me that his sister had more merit than mine, by God, I'd knock his brains about his ears. Poor little Betsy, she is the honestest, worthiest girl that ever was born. Heaven be praised, she is recovered, for if I had lost her, I never should have enjoyed another happy moment. In this manner he ran on some time, till the tears began to overflow, which, when he perceived, he stopped. Perhaps he was unable to go on, for he seemed almost choked. After a short silence, however, having wiped his eyes with his handkerchief, he fetched a deep sigh and cried, I am ashamed you should see this, Mr. Booth, but damn me, nature will get the better of dignity. I now comforted him with the example of Xerxes, as I had before done with that of the King of Sweden, and soon after we sat down to breakfast together with much cordial friendship. For I assure you, with all his oddity, there is not a better-natured man in the world than the Major. "'Good-natured, indeed,' cried Miss Matthews, with great scorn. "'A fool! How can you mention such a fellow with commendation?' Booth spoke as much as he could in defense of his friend. Indeed, he had represented him in as favorable a light as possible, and had particularly left out those hard words with which, as he hath observed a little before, the Major interlarded his discourse. Booth then proceeded as in the next chapter. End of section 27 Reading by Malone